Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Well, we've done a few episodes with people from Bakersfield. We started out with Chris Addington, who was the heavy hitter that had the legendary Rodbuster Gia. And then after Chris Addington, we tracked on George Delfino. Well, back in those days, there was another person that was party to all this stuff that was going on, and he continued to go on throughout the automotive world in Bakersfield, doing a lot of other custom cars, not just Volkswagens, really had his hand in a lot of the behind the scenes things. And that person is Steve Connect. Now, Steve was the owner of a shop in Bakersfield by the name of Volksworks limited that was his hobby shop and you may be familiar with his car vw trends cover car june of 1987 future shock it was a raspberry colored notchback with a removable top steve was the guy with chris addington that started the fiberglass dashes that had the center console integrated steve was involved in tons of cars even before his car was featured with one of his first cars being featured in march of 84 uh, in the VW Trends, it was called Passion was the layout, and it was BG Star 68 Squareback that was a raspberry color as well. Another car that was featured that he had a part in was a, another cover car in 87 VW Trends Champagne Colored Notchback. In March of 89 in VW Trends, Dennis Hyde's Gia, which is the one that you just saw sold to Andy the Paint in the UK. October of 1989, Hot VW Mike Daly's 65 notchback and then several cars after that and let's not forget that steve had a big part in building aftershock george delfino's squareback because he and george were tight friends steve goes on to work for george at the stereo shop that george had uh, building the blazer the ppi blazer and uh, going on to build cars that were in the v8 world for other people he also uh, worked with Frank Hinman, who's got a pretty wide car collection, and he was able to build a lot of creations through that. Steve just really has a desire to create things, and you get a real sense of that through this podcast. But first, let's have a word from our sponsors. Guess who's back? VW Trends Magazine, that's who. Bringing back the fun in magazines. A true cross-culture of the VW hobby. VW Trends was always willing to step outside and bring you the latest trend in the VW scene. And you could be a part of this historic relaunch. How, you ask? Well, go to VWTrendsMagazine.com and there are several different ways that you can help relaunch this magazine. That's right. This is a grassroots effort put on by the VW community itself, relaunching one of those fun magazines that was bringing the culture to the market. They've got subscription packages all the way from $1.99 of the Founders Club all the way to donate five bucks just to do your part to help get this back on the scene. This magazine for the people's car is for the people and it's by the people. So now you guys can be a part of history and contribute to help get this magazine relaunched. First issue's coming out shortly, so stand by to get more details on that. But for now, go to vwtrendsmagazine.com and support the relaunch of VW Trends Magazine. Are you looking to get some disc brakes on your bus on the down low? How about a narrowed beam? What about converting your bus to IRS? Well, let me tell you what. The boys over at Type E Motorsports got your number. They've got a disc brake kit that allows you to go buy off-the-shelf factory available parts at any local auto parts place and adapt disc brakes and wide five to the front of your bus. For only 500 bucks, you can pick up that kit. 
that takes your 63 to 67 bus and converts it to discs in the front with ready to go off the shelf parts that you purchase at your local auto parts place. How about a narrowed beam? A US made narrowed four inch link pin beam, 215 bucks. Or to do IRS, 950 bucks for a complete easy bolt-in IRS kit. He also does full bus beams end-to-end, rotor-to-rotor for three grand turnkey. So if you guys want to get some of your stuff decked out on your bus or your bug, go check out Type E Motorsports. Now, Brian's been on the podcast before, so you can check him out in episode number 105. Check him out at type-emotorsports.com. They've got a lot of suspension parts available, all U.S. made and ready to go. So hit them up at typeemotorsports.com. And just some new updates, I wanted you guys to know that on, on Feedspot, we've made the number one Volkswagen podcast in podcast history. So a little shout out for Let's Talk Dubs being the number one VW-related podcast. If you guys are going to head to the Sacramento Buggerama, you guys can come check us out. Let's Talk Dubs will be out there. Me and George T. will be out there with some uh, couple cars on display and our podcast setup out there just uh, hanging out. There's some good stuff going on I'll be talking about probably on next week's podcast. This week, I want to give a shout out to John Cayley. He's in Riverside, and he purchased a couple shirts from us at the Octo event. For those of you that want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com, click on the store, pick up some merch. We just got a fresh batch of shirts in, so they're ready to ship. Uh, I got a couple shirts that were on back order for some guys that'll be getting shipped out this week. Other than that, guys, let's get into it this week with the builder of Future Shock and the owner of Volksworks, Steve Kinect, on this week's Let's Talk Dubs. So on today's podcast, we've got uh, a special guest. We've been doing a lot of back, a lot of history and backtracking over uh, a lot of the cars that were built in the '80s and some of the cars that were really setting some of those benchmarks for um, for the custom scene. And on today's podcast, I've got Steve Connect, who's the guy that was behind the scenes and and had a few cars out there that were. Uh, coming out of Bakersfield, California. So on today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Steve Connect to the podcast. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So we have a lot, I mean, we got a lot to talk about. We we did like kind of a pre-interview a little bit just so I, I get a little more detail. And, and I found out just truckloads of stuff that I didn't know. And one of those, we always start the podcast the same way with your VW story and how you got into Volkswagen. So we'll start there, and we're going to take this long journey all the way through what you've been through. So uh, what's your VW story? Well, how far back should I go? The beginning. <laughs> probably my first my first um, encounter with the VW was, I was probably like eight years old, and uh, my dad and I had built this little go-kart that we, we tinkered with, my, gosh, probably for 15 years. But it started out... Um, where he had a buddy who had a, uh, his Volkswagen went over the edge of a canyon and um, our little go-kart thought it would be pretty cool to have a VW transmission in it. So we crawled down these rocks, me and my dad, and cut the, cut the transmission out of, that, out of that car and drug it up the canyon and put it into our go-kart. And then fast forward from that, um, in 1970, my parents bought a brand new VW, uh, 1970 light blue Volkswagen bug. 
And um, man, I was so small that it was, I thought it was cool to sit in that little cubby hole behind the rear seat. Yeah. And uh, kind of grew out of that pretty fast though. And then, um, so we had that until I turned 16 and um, I, I went to work for my aunt in the, in the bee farm up in Northern California. And my dad said, okay, well you can take the Volkswagen, you know, to, up there to work for the summer. So I took the car up there, worked for the summer, worked all summer long and uh, saved all my money and bought a, an eight track, uh, eight track player and two six by nines to put in that same cubby that I used to think it was cool to be in yeah. and uh, <laughs> brought the car home. Next day was time to get up to go to school. And I thought it'd be pretty cool to, you know, jump in my car with my new eight track player and go to school and comes to find out that that wasn't my car. That was my dad's car. And he took it to work. <laughs> so I was back on the bus. So wow. then after that, he, um, um, you know, as I got old, a little bit older, like, like 17, I was working at the gas station up in front of our house by, by our house and decided that, um, since I had put all that $300 into stereo equipment, I was going to buy that car from him and, uh, bought it for $500 that Volkswagen. You paid and, uh, $500 for a car with $300 worth of audio equipment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was a $2,000 car brand new. I, yeah. I had the, 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 the pink slip from it when he, when he bought it. So it would probably only be about what 70. That was like 70. So it was like seven, eight years old when, when I got it. It was and dad kept pristine condition of cars. And um, of course, being a, a high school kid with go-kart background, it didn't stay stocked very long. And I remember the one, the one uh, modification that I made to it that killed my mom was my, my mom, if you can tell from the last name, I'm German. Yeah. And there used to be these stickers that you would buy that uh, like with the letter D on it. And that stood for Deutschland. And my mom had that sent over from Germany from her parents and it got on, put onto the Volkswagen. Well, you can imagine in, in high school, some of the, um, acronyms that D can stand for sure on the back of your car. So that had to come off. And my man, I was like pulling teeth for my mom. But then uh, throughout high school, I, I worked on that car and did some body modifications to it. And I think I'd sent you some pictures of it and um, painted my first car when I was like 17. My dad had this old spray gun from it's probably World War II vintage. And we went to the local paint shop and uh, they said, this is house paint. You need to go down the street and buy car paint. So we went down the street and bought car paint and learned, started the, uh, started the long haul of painting cars. And so painting cars was, was that really your primary thing that you started doing was the first thing you did was, was cause it sounds to me the first thing you started doing was car audio and a little bit of tinkering, but the big major task you took on was painting cars. Uh, with that Volkswagen, um, I kind of got the, I, I bought, you know, like I said, I bought it for $500 to my dad and I didn't have $500. So I was giving like $25 a week for my gas station job. And just about the time I would get it paid off, I would blow it up. And so, yeah, <laughs> can I borrow $500, run down to Claude's buggies, pick up all the parts that I need Friday night, the motor would come out. I'd work on it all weekend long Sunday night, that car, that motor was going back in there so I could get back to school on Monday. So I had a lot of mechanical stuff that I was always doing to it and body and paint work. So an interior work. So I kind of got it all on, on that car. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and my car audio at that point was not. It was. I mean, I went to a stereo shop, but that wasn't. It was just. It was a thing. Yeah, maybe at the time back then they were limited on technology because later. Later in the late seventies, early eighties, car audio technology really started taking leaps and bounds. We're gonna we're gonna get into to car audio in a little bit because it's it's really one of my favorite subjects. Um, you know, being an amateur audiophile that I was back in my in my late teens and early twenties. Uh, but before we get into that, so eventually you get to the point where you start Volkswell Volksworks, which was your shop in Bakersfield, where a lot of cars in the eighties came out of. What was the genesis of how you started Volksworks and, and where does that come from? Well, I, I think um, when I got right out of high school, of course, school wasn't really so great for me. It was not my thing. And the last two years that I went to high school, I did vocational training in, um, in auto mechanics. And so when I got out of high school, right out of high school, I went to work for the local Ford dealership and worked there for a year or so, I guess. And um, I, I had, a, had an opportunity to go to work for a friend of mine at, at being a diesel mechanic. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I just said, you know what? I want to think I want to try this on my own, have my own business. And the only thing I really knew how to do was work on Volkswagens. So that, that was kind of an easy transition for me to start my shop. And right about that time is when all the cow look stuff was going on. So it, 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 that was just uh, kind of the, the catalyst, I guess, that made it happen. And now what was the first car that you started? I mean, this, the scene, if you can set the scene for us, like it's the 80s, the mini trucks are starting to, are, are like just, you know, hot colors and beat grooves and all those cool accessories are coming out. And, the, you know, at that time, you, you can go one of two ways, right? You can go mini truck or you can go Volkswagen. Um, now, you, now, you pick Volkswagen because of affordability or just because of your history? Or, or where do you go? Where, and how do you pick Volkswagens versus mini trucks? Well, I think mine, I didn't really have a choice. I had all my experience in Volkswagens. Yeah. So, but it's funny because my, uh, my shop manager, Mark Bell, he, uh, he was a mini truck guy. So we, we constantly had a battle. He was trying to bring trucks in and I was trying to bring Volkswagens in and it didn't really matter. <laughs> they all paid the bills. Yeah. Whatever's custom. Is kind of where I started. And the first car you build that gets any recognition, because you're building cars in high school and you're doing all kinds of stuff for friends. I mean, I see here that, you know, you built, uh, you, you've got, so is the first car you do the notch or are you doing like your girlfriend's car in high school and Terry super beetle and some other cars? Yeah. Um, I built a lot, quite a few cars before, before I had Volksworks, but again, they were, you know, friends cars. And, um, as far as the first one that got any recognition, oh man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet that your podcast has a, a comment section and yeah. if I if I screw any of this up and my friends are listening, be sure to straighten me out <laughs> in the comment section because that was a long time ago. And, and to be real honest with you, I don't really remember what car was the first one to get into the magazine. But I built some cars before I started my notchback. I mean, I had my blue Volkswagen Bug, and then I had a um, a Squareback that I used as my shop car. But both of those were, you know, they were body painted 
clean cars, but not not magazine worthy cars. And I, I almost I almost have to say that when, when I painted Chris Addington's uh, Gia when it was blue, um, that was probably the first one they got in the magazine. And so Crystal Blue Persuasion, that's you painted that car. The blue when it was all blue, yeah, and then and then it was repainted when they when he started showing it in the full custom class because to that point it was uh, um, in the Carmen Gia class, and then so, I think he moved into the full custom and then and then the Bean Brothers repainted it with the graphics and stuff on it. And so you were you were involved in the beginning. Did you know Chris when it was Brown's Gia and as oh, yeah. the evolution started to come about? Now Chris is Chris a little bit older than you. Yeah. couple years older so he was like the he was like the adult right like <laughs> you guys are just yep. fresh out of your teens and then here's a guy who's like he's got a real job he's an architect uh you know all this stuff and and he's got a desire to kind of get that car and and, and push that scene because there's you know that car that car to me is like the bench car the benchmark of the most custom 80s car that ever came out i think i don't think there's anything that's been more more custom modified and purpose built just to be like a show devastator. Yeah. Um, and you're around in those days, you know, you're, you're around when, I mean, it's, it's like the, the beginning of when CAD and machining start coming together and Chris is back the, the, the luck, right. Of Chris being an architect and understanding some CAD software. And then eventually you get into that. You start getting into, uh, the, the software side of things, learning how to program and, and design parts and things which we'll get into that in a second. Um, and I, I kind of, and we got plenty of time. We're going to work our way there, but you know, you, so you paint Chris's car and then you get your notch, you start on your notch. What is, cause, cause your notch, the name of your notch. Now I saw it twice. One time I saw it, it was, uh, uh, it was referred to as top notch in the magazine in one of the magazine features, but the name of the car was future shock. Right. And, how many times was that car just done one time or was there several evolutions of that car? Well, when, when, when we were building the notchback, um, we were building a lot of different cars. You know, my goal as, as a shop owner was when, when we went to the car shows, I wanted to have something in every category. So we had the DiGiacomo's that had the 66, the pre 66 and earlier cars. Um, that we worked on. That's one of the pictures that's on the, uh, on the mural on the bottom of it. Um, Dennis Hyde was building his, um, uh, Carmagia. Chris originally was in the Carmagia class. So we had that covered. And then, um, so those three cars were the first that we were first working on. And then, um, you know, specifically for, for showing. And then there was a lot of guys in the club that, you know, we, we did paint work on and, and help those guys try to get to the car shows because they all helped me at the car show. And, and, you know, when you, when you pull in with a trailered car and you got a display to set up and, and you got to clean everything and the tires need arm, <laughs> armor alling is what we used back then. And um, so they were going to go to the show anyway. So I wanted those guys to always have some cool looking cars to take. So, um, I mean, gosh, if I, if I think back at some of the, some of the people that we were, that were in the club that, I, that I worked, um, worked on their cars. I mean, the, the club itself was the club, like was the club around before your, your, uh, 
your shop was and was there this desire for the club? Cause I know in Vegas we had that where like we wanted to go to Southern California and represent Las Vegas. Right. Did you guys have that same thing with V-Dubs limited or were you guys just trying to make like, Hey, we want V-Dubs limited to be known, known for having killer cars. Um, I, I, I think that's probably a personal question that you'd have to ask everyone who was in the club, but you know, it was, it was a good repository for me as a, as a, as a car builder or, or had my shop. And if you had to have your car worked on, it, it was kind of more fun to work at a shop or take your car to a shop that you, you were going to see that Wednesday night when you, when you went to the car club. So, um, I, which was first the club or the, my, my shop uh, is kind of, it was kind of probably the same around the same time. And then, being in the club, uh, you know, it's, it's a little tricky sometimes being in a club and owning a shop, especially if there's other shops and other clubs. Uh, it always creates a little bit of controversy and drama. Um, do you ever have any, any of that stuff you had to deal with or was, was uh, Bakersfield a pretty tight knit group of guys and gals? I, I mean, there was um, Ryan Daly and his family had Volkswagen country and, but they didn't really do what I did. It was more, um, and I, and I painted Brian, Brian's car, that, that blue, blue notch back. Um, yeah. but, but so their shop was more, you know, geared towards brake jobs, you know, engine repair, stuff like that. And there really wasn't another car, uh, shop in town that I can think of right now that did everything, you know, that our, our shop did the tune-ups and brake jobs and stuff like that also but we also did paint and body we did interior we did engine work so it was pretty much a one-stop shop and if you get somebody in there to do a brake job and you do a good job and then they decide that they wanted to have you know they see all these cool cars driving around well what can you do for me steve so i wouldn't say that there was really any animosity with any of the other shops at least not from my side so I don't know that there was really too many, there could have been other VW clubs, but I, I, I wasn't involved with it. So I don't really know. And now tell us about, so let's talk about future shock, right? This is your car and, uh, it, it's actually recently been for sale. I actually, uh, <laughs> I called down there to try to get a hold of somebody just to chat him up about the car. Um, but, uh, when you started with with future shock uh was your thought right out of the gate your because the car has a lot of and i think i think what went maybe uh a little understated and looking back at the history there was a lot of really high-tech stuff on that vintage notch that you're you were really pushing to kind of get that thing as technologically advanced as you can can you tell us about some of the trick stuff that maybe went overlooked on that car maybe some people didn't recognize well that when I built that car, like I said, we were working on some other the other cars uh, that were showing at the time, and and that was that car was built specifically just to promote my shop, you know, and and full custom was the the way that I could best show what we could do at the shop, and so um, we got out the rule book and said what you know what is it that they look for in the, at the car shows in full custom. And we tried to, uh, you know, get a 10 out of 10 out of all the different, out of the different areas, interior, undercarriage, 
display, body and paint, engine, um, all of those things. So um, I, I would say the things that go unnoticed on that car, probably when we built that car, the uh, the first, like, I think it was the 944 Porsches, kind of had the wide body where they would kind of move the fenders out, but they didn't have a lip on it. So if you look at if you look at the Future Shock, if you look from the door back to the like fit, either one of the fender wells, right. it, it's it's a straight line. It doesn't go down the side and then flare out like like a like a like a standard Type Three does. Yeah. And then and then I knew I wanted to do some nice paint work on it, and um, painting through seam body seams was just I, I never really liked doing that. And so I had to make sure that all the body seams were, you know, molded shut, made it into a one-piece body. The reason that the hood and the trunk lid open the way they do is not because I thought it was really that cool, but it's points. It's body points and suicide doors, body points. And, um, you know, I'd taken the top of it off um, and found out that it's really hard to have a convertible um Judging on interior on a convertible is easier for the judges than it is with a hard top. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you're just looking right down into the hole. You're not having to look back in those little nooks and crannies and things. So um, once I, sh I, I showed it for a while as just with the top removed and then to gather more body points, we, we put the top back on, made it a removable hard top, and then we chopped the top down two inches. And... Uh, learned my valuable lesson there on chop tops is that the chop top is the easy part. It's the glass. That's the challenge. Yeah. And, uh, and um, so, you know, so every, just about every part of that car has got some kind of modification on it to just try and make it look as you, you try to make it look like it was supposed to be that way. So the, right. so the more successful you are, the harder it is to see what you've modified. <laughs> And, that and that, no, a hundred percent. Like, you know, some of the best custom mods are the ones that no one recognizes, you know, they, they never even catch it. So it looks almost factory. Now looking at a dash shot of this car, uh, there's, it's got a digital display dash in it. It's got a little TV. It's got a, it looks like a, you know, a full, a, a, a single den head unit with a, a, a half den EQ and stuff EQ. in there. And so the molded dash the molded dash you have a connection to on that. Yeah. Yeah. My, my dad and I, we, we made custom dashes and we sold it. Chris and I were business partners um, selling for show car specialties. We, we sold um, um, dashes, uh, fiberglass glove boxes, um, bumpers, type three bumpers and Carmagia bumpers, the one piece bumpers that were, that were fiberglass so that you could paint them and, you know, they just fit right close to the car. Oh wow! And on the type, and on the type three bumpers, and, and I think on on the later models, because the the, the pictures that you're going to get in the magazine, you, you asked me, does was that car built once? Well, the reality was yes, it was built once, but it was it was every time that we went to a show, we tried to have something new to 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 unveil at, at the new shows. So when you look at the car, when it's got like painted wheels, you know that that's that's one show. Um, another, so the, the next time we would have had like polished wheels, the next time we came with a convertible, you know, with the removable hard top, the next time we came with, uh, different graphics. So it was, it was, con it was, <laughs> we would work all day in the shop 
And then about six o'clock, the, the gates would close and then we'd start working on the notchback. And we'd work on that all week long. And then, you know, Friday night, you'd load everything up on the trailer and two o'clock in the morning, you'd, you'd head to wherever the latest show was going to be because they were always far away, except for twice when they were at Famosa. And then you would show the car on Saturday or Sunday, whatever day it was, drive home, put the car on, put the car away. And then Monday night, you'd start all over again because every time you, you, it's funny because you would go to the car shows and all these other cars, these beautiful cars. And, and, and you're thinking to yourself, well, none, none, all, all you see of your car is the, is the flaws right. and everybody else's car is perfect. So when I, you know, we, we go to the show and we would see the flaws and we would write them down and that's what we would work on next week. Yeah. And it's so funny. It, was, it, was, it was just constantly being upgraded. And then, um, and, I, and I don't really remember when the magazine shot was at what point it, it was, it was, it was shot, but I'm sure there was more done after that. Yeah. It's June. It's in the June 80, uh, June 1987 issue of VW trends. And, you know, looking at the cover on that, you see that the, uh, you see that the wheels are polished. They're no longer painted. Um, and now are those factory wheels off another car that have been modified or are those like, no, they were, they were like an aftermarket wheel that, that would fit the, fit the application. Yeah. I, I don't even think the bolt pattern was right. I think we had to redrill the, the rotors to get, to get them to bolt on. I just, I just didn't want to do, I, I didn't want, well, with the name future shock, you want it to be something that looks different than all the other cars that have got, you know, polished alloys or sure. spokes. And so I wanted something that was a little bit different and, and having a wide tire was most of the Calix stuff was 135s up front, 165s in the back, and you know they look like inner tubes. So yeah. I wanted something that looked different, and that was just the ones I was able to find that would had the the offset <clears throat> that I could use. And you know, one of the things on the cars that I noticed that when I was looking at the pictures, there's there's quite a bit that's different on it in the feature from '87 to the car that has today. One of the questions I want to know. There's a center mount, looks like a Lexan or plexiglass fan shroud. Yeah. What's the story on the plexiglass fan shroud? Because the car no longer has that in it, right? Well, that was like I said, that was a purpose-built car for showing, and I couldn't show my chromed fan in a in a regular fan shroud, so I had to build a plexiglass fan shroud so you could see my chrome fan. <laughs> <laughs> and then but that no, that, was, that wasn't for driving. <clears throat> Oh, so that was just for show purposes only then. Right. So, all right. So it's more of a, because I'm sitting here thinking like, man, I wonder why that thing never took off. You know, that thing seems like a, a pretty serious, uh, you know, that you had the clear deck lids and all kind of stuff like that. So any any cutting edge technology that they they had, they would try to move into the VW scene. Now, look at the dashboard. You've got a, you've got a digital dash that looks like uh, meters on it. What, what type of dash was that? Was that custom made or was that I, something? I made that. Really? I, 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 I took my electronics course and put it to, 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 to use and, and made the, you remember at that time was the night Rider that had the yeah. little red light that went back and forth. So I thought that looked pretty cool to just have bar graphs going up and down in my dash. And so did, were the bar dashes, were they actually functional? Yeah. So you actually went through the process of setting parameters on there. They weren't just for show because like on the kit car, uh, the guy that owns one of the kit cars, uh, Carrie Fisher's brother lives here in town 
and I happened to be there doing a job because I'm a contractor, and we got to talk about cars, and he showed me the car, but everything, you know, those the Hollywood cars is just mocked up. You know, nothing's real. And so you're saying that all those gauges were accurate and worked, and, and you had taken well, I don't time. Know how, I don't know how accurate they were <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't use when, – when I started driving the car, I put VDO gauges in there. But so it was mostly for show. And now tell me about the tell me about the steering wheel in that car. Um, well, again, we wanted to have something that was different, and um, I, I, I I can't emphasize enough how much my dad how much my dad helped me in in projects throughout my life, and that was one of those ones that he took upon himself. I was complaining about what steering wheel should we put in this thing, and couldn't find something, so he went around the back of the shop and he grabbed an old VW steering wheel and he cut it all apart and he welded some, some tubes onto it and he wrapped it all in Capacil and ground it and brought it to me and says, well, this one work. Dad, you're a miracle worker. Yeah. So we painted it, painted it. And that has a, a, a telescopic, telescopic, um, um, tilt steering column in it. Like out of a GM. Yeah, I, mean, I don't even remember what we got it out of at the time, but yeah, like like it was it wasn't it wasn't one of the I did it steering wheels. We were we were building always on a budget, so we had to scrounge whatever we could. And your dad, now your dad was a fiberglass guy, right? That's how you ended up getting all, all the fiberglass stuff that you guys started producing and that type of stuff, right? Was that well, your dad's we, was that your dad's business or it was just a hobby? Oh, no, no, no. My dad was uh he worked for PG&E for 20 years or whatever. And he for he was fortunate enough to retire early. And you've seen the pictures of our, our, our old go-kart that, that had fiberglass from way back. And we just kind of put those skills to use and trial and error. We would eventually get what we, what we needed. And back then it was truly trial and error. You didn't have, you know, 400 YouTube videos to watch on how to do anything. You, you tried it and you failed and then you tried it again. And now looking at the car, it's got the it's got the the turn dash, the fiberglass piece that you guys made, and then it had integrated door panels. Was that a kit you sold, or you just sold the dash piece? Um, the the door pan the door panels were just for my car. So the dash the dash was a um, was something that we sold through small car specialties, show car specialties, and um, it it would fit into a car. Believe it or not, it would fit into a Carmagia, it would fit into a Type Three, and it would fit into a Bug. Oh wow. I, I think the bug was different, but I know the Type 3 and the Gia's were the same dash that just had a different trim, but the width was the same, and you were able to use them in both cars. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's definitely a futuristic dash. That's, that's, is that the same style dash, or is it a, did you guys make a custom one for Chris's car? Did you guys build the one for Chris's car? Yeah, we, the, the one that's, the, well, when, when he had Brown's Gia, there was a dash in there that we built specifically for that car. And that one, that was only for that car. And then the dashes that we built for show car specialties, those were for, like I said, those, we sold those through the, through the mail. <clears throat> now the dash that's in um, the, uh, the uh, Rod Buster, that one uh, we built, we built for him. My dad and I did. And th the funny story about that was, is I figured out how heat sinks work when I built that dash. Because oh, really? <laughs> By the time you sand all those all those fins, you understand how much surface area there is in in a fin, and that's how heat sinks work. Because if that didn't have all those fins on it, that would have been easy to sand. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, that thing is a 
there's there's so much detail and and maybe your car was just the guinea pig where you guys got the beginning of the idea and then it would evolve into like okay well we did this on steve's car let's take it to the next level on the next project we're working on um you know it's 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 pretty insane the amount of work that you put into this car at such an early time in the VW scene because a lot of people, it, it, what what strikes me as unique is in the Bakersfield scene, you know, there was that, 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 that cutoff between uh, driver and show car. And then when you go show car, it's like, you've got to go full tilt show car. And it seems like you, George, Chris, like you guys were just out there just to, just to just dominate the show scene. I mean, was that the motivation to you guys just to go out and just show these guys what some fellows from Bakersfield can do or what? Would that be vain if I said yes? No, it's listen, <laughs> everybody's, and I think, I think I only equate it to, you know, us being in Vegas where everybody that's not from SoCal quote unquote, you know, you're kind of outside the, the be, you're you're behind the orange curtain right you're on the wrong side and so you know it's like there's this something to prove but being able to bring bring something to prove but with your own style it's one thing to copy what they're doing it's a whole nother thing to keep raising the bar and to me in the history coming out of bakersfield because i i'm from vegas and us vegas guys think bakersfield is like farm town it's like you know a lot of farm town and a lot of which it most predominantly is but you guys had one mean street scene in the eighties, you know, there was just a lot of really cool custom cars coming out of there. And, and, you know, Bakersfield's evolved into a huge hot rod capital and a lot of custom cars come out of Bakersfield, California. And so, you know, you guys are the guys that were teenagers back then, but now you guys have grown into, you know, adults who've produced a lot of, a lot of really phenomenal cars out of the Bakersfield area. Um, you know, the, the colors, I mean, how was the, was there the dichotomy there in the hot rod scene that Volkswagens versus hot rods over there in Bakersfield? Was that pretty heavy? I don't know. I painted a couple hot rods, but I it really wasn't my, it certainly wasn't a competition that we had. I mean, if we happened to be at the same place at the same time, it happened, but it was, you know, Volksworks was around Volkswagens. So I was really not not too much into the. First of all, I wouldn't have been able to afford that 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 caliber of car. And now Volkswagen Volksworks, you know, you've got the gear. I mean, you've got the notch back, and and some of the things on the notch. Obviously, the photo shoot is the, the pictures in the photo shoot are from a, around two different eras of the car, because on some of the interior pictures, you know, there's there's no side view mirrors, and then later in the cover, it's got billet side view mirrors. So it looks like there's a couple different timelines that are photographed that made the single feature, which is interesting because, you know, you get to catch on some of that that you just just led into that there was a constant evolution of the car. Um, now, with with having, you know, the Gia built to this, or I keep saying the Gia, with having the notchback built to this level, this was a show-only car, wasn't a car you would ever drive anywhere, and then you know well after i stopped showing it i drove it around a little bit but it, it just seemed like every time you drove it the the agony of the of the destruction didn't outweigh the the coolness of driving it sure if that I mean, makes any sense well yeah i mean i i think i i come from the school of like i i've had show cars 
and I have cars that I show and the first thing I want to do is get the first scratch on it so I can get the apprehension over with and just enjoy it and just start driving it. Because for me, there's nothing cooler than being seen in your cool car, you know? Yep. Um, but with this car that you're building this, do you guys start George's car for that? Cause George, George's car was done twice, right? He had it with the hard top and then you guys just one day just rolled yeah. over there and just hacked the roof off. Yeah, it was done probably two or three times, but, but, but two, two major ones, um, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, George, cause I don't really remember the particulars, but I think it was blue before it, it ever came in to see me yep. as just, as just as a square back when he had the big stereo in it. And then, um, then he said one day, Hey, Hey, I want to do something different. Like, you know, cut the top off. And I, I was listening to his interview and he, he reminded me that we were at his dad's house when we did that. And I can just imagine his I can just imagine his dad standing there shaking his head. But, um, <laughs> you know, at, at first you know, he wasn't, he wasn't looking at, I, I don't think he was really thinking so much about showing it when we cut the top off, because I think he was sort of like what you were saying, you know, he, he built this super, super crazy stereo car. And while that's really fun for a while, after a while, um, the fun kind of wears off and, and maybe it'd be more fun to just cruise this around a little bit and not, not have that. So I, I, I suspect that's what happened when he cut the top off. And then, um, and then that was kind of crude, so we cleaned up quite a bit. And then he started showing it. And then I, I don't even think that I don't even know if George and I showed it at the same time. And if we did, he probably would have been in the Type Three class, and I was in in full custom. Yeah, and there was a there was a picture that I've seen a picture somewhere where the the cars are kind of parked nose to nose, and I'm not sure if it's a if it's a feature article or what it is. No, that was just one time when we were, and I don't even remember where we were at, but we had both cars. He, he probably what happened was we were at a car show and, and um, he was being featured and I had already drugged my car there. So we found this spot and we just unloaded them both and, and took some pictures for ourselves. I don't think that picture was ever in, 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 featured anywhere. Now, I think what that was just for us. Uh, so before we wrap up on the, on the notchback, what were some of the technological features that you had on there? I mean, I know that you had like a, I think it looked like what was like a keypad. Um, I know that you, obviously there was things constantly evolving. Like now it says 007 or something on the right side of the dash. And um, besides that the dash. That wasn't me. <laughs> oh, so, so that was somebody else that did that. Yeah, because I just saw yeah. when I was looking at it for sale, there were some unique things. Um but you had it had a TV in there for the time, and a TV and uh, and quite a stereo system at the time. Because I know you're a bit of an audiophile, so did no, you have a system that, or no? That that had zero stereo in it. It had a head unit and an EQ, so that the EQ lights could could flutter when it was at the show. But there wasn't any stereo in that car at that time. Oh wow! So more more showmanship than uh, actual functionality, huh? Absolutely. And then, and then late, later on, when um, when I started working for George at the stereo shop, then we put the car in on the showroom floor, and then then it got systems put into it just as as demo demo you know demo systems. Yeah. So so talking about that, you know, just to kind of give our listeners a timeline. In the beginning, with some of the cars that got featured first, it was in March of '84. You had uh, VW Trans. March of '84, VW Trans on the cover was 
Uh, the feature is called Passion, and it's BG Stars, 68 square back. And then uh, that's one of the cars that you had some influence when you did some. What, what work did you do on that car? I think that was probably, boy, because John Lee painted it. I didn't mm-hmm. paint that car. Um, you helped with some of the customization on it, some of the lowering and some stuff like that. Yeah, probably it was probably mostly mechanical because when I, I'm pretty sure that when when before she came to the club and and um, to my shop, I, I think it had already been lowered and painted. Um, I, the, the one thing that I so, totally remember about that car was that she had a a, a spin a, a rear IRS spindle that apparently was a little bit rounded, and we put. We, 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 we were constantly putting, uh, drums. The, that, that, well, that had a hub and then the, and then the, and then the, uh, the drum bolted to the hub and that hub, that hub was constantly stripping out on me. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, the good part of the Volkswagens, right? They're like, no matter how clean they look, they're still like, if you don't torque down the drums or you have something like that, you got the show car that goes nowhere. So you end up yeah. with, uh with some of that stuff that's, uh, that's always the Achilles heel to the, to the little VW stuff. So yep. um, later in October of 87, VW Trends, you had the Champagne Notchback. There was a Champagne Notchback that was featured in VW Trends. Um, that was Dave, Dave Horner's, I think. Yes. And so, yep. you know, in one year you get, you know, your car featured in June and then in October – You've got uh, the Champagne Notch, and then March of '89, you got Dennis Hyde's Gia, which just recently that car just recently changed hands, right? And I think you were involved in some of that some of that process. No, I, I, oh, I'm I, sorry, George was. George, George was, was involved. George, George, yeah, George and, and and Dennis they worked together. And so what's interesting is that, you know this for these guys to have these cars for so long and still hold on to them forever was was pretty amazing to me. Now on Dennis Hyde's Gia. How involved were you on that car? Oh, uh, that poor guy. He worked him. He, he was a I don't know, sixteen, seventeen years old, and he was a he worked building houses. So he'd go out there at sun up and and hammer hammer houses together. And then three and four in the afternoon, he would come over there and and he completely stripped the car apart in my in my in my uh, parking lot at, at Volksworks. And he did all the sanding, you know did everything that he could do. I helped him out with the body work and then I painted it for him. And, um, I, I fell in love with that color and I just begged Dennis to let me, let me, cause my notchback was in the shop just about ready to get painted. And I begged him to let me borrow that color from him. And finally he relented. And, um, so that's why my notchback and Dennis Hyde's car are kind of the same color. Now, when I did Dennis's, is just the straight color, and mine had, you know, pearl gold at the top, fading into blue, and then red down at the bottom uh, with with the graphics on it. So when it sat in the sun side by side, they really didn't look the same color. But the base colors of my notchback and Dennis's car were, were identical. And then Dennis, you know, he bought the, da- the 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 fiberglass dash and the bumpers, and then we we painted it. Put the graphics in. The graphics on that car are, are, I think, super cool because they're very understated. If you look at the car itself, it's just a solid magenta. But then right. when you start looking at the details, you start looking underneath the fender wells, you look underneath the floor pan, that's where the graphics are. So it's like kind of a 
dichotomy of a car. The top of it is really understated, super cold, super clean. But when you start looking at the details, that's when you really start to feel the, the, uh, the, the feeling of the car. Yeah, and then it's, it starts to sneak up on you. What's amazing to me is that he still had the car all these years, and it's now on its way to England. So yeah. it, it's got to be a, one of those things where it's like, it's like to, at some point you, you reach a, a line with a car where it's like, okay, enough's enough, no more. It's time to move on. And whether something else strikes your fancy or whatever, but you'll you'll hold on to these cars until you find really the right buyer, somebody that that like you know I've had it in circumstances where I've been whether it's a swap meet or whatever, and I meet with somebody and we have a conversation, and and my attitude's like I I just did this recently. I was selling a car, and a guy came to look at it, Air Force kid. He really liked it, and the day before I was negotiating with a guy, we got to a lower price, and then. The, the next guy comes the next day and he's more of a serious buyer kid and he had to borrow a couple thousand bucks. I said, you know what, man, don't worry about the couple thousand bucks. I'll just sell it to you for what I, you know, because you really want the car. And it, it means something to you to, to let the car go to somebody that really wants it. You know, I think, uh, you know, these cars become a part of our life and sometimes a good part and sometimes a bad part, you know, depending on, uh, the abuse that we take during, during the build process. Now, so you have Volksworks for a couple years, and what's your evolution after that? Because you have a, this huge history that continues to go on and and into hot rods and some other things. But after you shut down Volksworld, Volksworks, what, and what's the reason for closing it down? Are you just burnt out on the scene? You want to do something different, or where does that come in? Um, I think I think probably the. Well, there's two things, two things that actually happened. The, the shop that I had was pretty far out of town. Um, and, you know, I couldn't put all the car. I had a fenced lot and, and I couldn't put all the cars in the shop every night. And I mean, this was before, you know, they had alarm systems that rang on your cell phone. If even if, if, if I had an alarm out there and I did, but so it rang and it took 20 minutes for the cops to get out there by then what 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 point was there to even doing that and i had a couple times where um somebody had broken into the into the into the shop in into the yard and stole some stuff off of some of my customers cars and that was really one of the most uncomfortable times when you're have a good customer and a good friend and parts have been stolen off of their car when it's your responsibility. Yeah. But you have to tell them that I, I'm sorry, I have insurance, but my insurance company tells me that if I do anything to help you, I'm on my own and my coverage will be lost. They said, you're supposed to have car insurance to cover the, that kind of stuff. And while that may be true, it's still, these are my friends. These are, you know, these are people that I, that I live with. And that left a real sour taste in my mouth. And then um, it was really getting to the point where I was paying people to build cars for me, to work on the cars, which is what I like to do. And I kind of got stuck doing the administrative stuff that I really don't like to do. And uh, when, I, when, when my employees started making more money than I did, I said, this is just, I've got to do something different. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, and, it's and so not then, fun. Now that the fun was over at that point, I wasn't showing anymore at that point. Um, and, and it was just, it was just time to move on to something else. And then what I kind of did after that was one, one great thing about having a shop is that 
you take everybody who comes in off the street. You, you, you never know what, what's coming in, in the driveway, you know, is it going sure. to be a brake job? Is it going to be a show car? And after, I, I think I had the shop for about three years. Um, I kind of gleaned out the people that liked my work and liked, wanted to build things that I wanted to build at the same time. And so I was able, when I closed down my shop, I kind of got rid of all the overhead of brake jobs and tune-ups and things that they lose their luster after doing about a hundred or 200 of them. Sure. And, and, and so I was able to glean some really good customers that, that wanted to do the kind of work that I like to do. So then I, I opened up another shop and, and just, it was just a, a building in an, in an industrial complex. And I think that's where I did most of George's work. And then I think after a while there, I, I'm not exactly sure what I, I know I did a lot of work in my dad's back. He had a little, I don't know, 10 by 30 foot shop in his backyard that I grew up in. Yeah. And when I, when I didn't have any place else to go, dad would let me go back there and work on cars. And I know I worked, I, I painted the rod buster in that little shop and I painted George's car in that shop. So I, I, but I remember doing some of the body work in when I had my, uh, industrial building so not exactly sure where where all that went now Rodbuster, you did the graphics the first time on no, Rodbuster? no 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 i just did the, i laid down the uh the red the candy okay. apple red the candy and apple jay, red jay, jay warner did the did all the graphic work on it and now you had a shop at one time called tns designs that's uh, just my business okay that was but that was just what I, you yeah, I still, I, yeah, I still run that business and that kind of gives me the latitude to do all kinds of things. Sure. Sure. And so after you end up kind of wrapping that up with the shop, you go a little bit into, you know, because by trade during the, like your day job is not cars, right? That's not what you do now. You kind of do design not and now. engineering. Yeah. And it, it, did you get it? You got into that shortly after this or you know, what no, time? I think, I think, uh, no, it was a long time, long time after working on cars because I, I remember um, finishing up on George's uh, square back. And then I actually rented a house from Chris Addington and, and, and worked in his garage. And that's where we started working on um, George's big uh, uh, sound off blazer. That's right. So you start working, working with George at the stereo shop. Yeah. Yeah. And at the, yeah, well, at first it was just, I was working on his, on his blazer for him, just like working on his, on his square back. But then when, when he, when his business started, you know, picking up at the stereo shop, he asked me to come, come to work for him and design some of their sound rooms and, and work on some of their, you know, their high end, their high end work. And so then I went to work for George for, I don't know, a couple of years, I guess. And that, and that's where you really started to kind of stretch your legs with the car audio and the digital, like yeah. the, 12, the 12 volt world. Yeah. He, um, well, when you build that, that blazer that he had was pretty insane. I mean, that was pretty much the top, top thing that was going out there. And, uh, yeah, that ended up being the PPI blazer. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was all PPI, so that's why I painted the graphics the way that I did to kind sure. of match uh, the PPI um, uh, amplifiers. And then uh, when I worked, went, when I went to work for George, um, my my wife and I had just bought a, a brand new 
um, Ford Probe, one of the first Ford Probes. And um, we did a stereo in that that was uh, the 500 watt class, but it, wa it wasn't about sound volume, it was about sound quality because we, we competed in the, in the sound off competitions. And, um, but my goal on that car was to make, make it look like there was no stereo in it. So everything was, was hidden until you turned the key on. And then it was like a transformer. Then the, the dash would roll up and the amplifier would roll out and lights would come on and all your speakers would start to glow. And I mean, it, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. It was pretty fun. Yeah. And George, I, George, you know, George, George is the brains behind that. I just did the installation, but he set me up with all the equipment and told me, you know, you want this speaker to be pointing at exactly this angle and this box needs to have exactly this much space in it. And, and uh, he's the wizard behind all that. So what's, what's interesting is, you know, at, with the, the detail and work that you do, and also from my experience doing car out installation, all of that motorization, uh, all those, um, you know, actuators and uh, servos and things like that, all of those take a lot of time. A lot. I mean, you'll mock something up 50 times before you're done with it to where it, it takes a lot of patience to really get into that. To, to to do that type of detail and also the, that's the early days of car audio where people really i mean wiring you're wiring everything through a relay and you know your bosch five pin relays and all that stuff and 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 compound systems with you know running 28 speakers off a of punch 45 and really trying to push the limits of of what you could do with really in hindsight really antiquated technology today's standard for sure but I mean, also that was at a time where, you know, we were borrowing parts and pieces to to customize panels and and retract dashboard pieces and things like that that weren't really as readily available as they are today. But I mean, there was guys out there pushing the boundaries, and and you know, I think that some of the audio stuff that you were doing back then was was really advanced for the time. You know, well, we used what we had at our disposal. I mean, all that moving, all that stuff is easy now because you've got servos that, that have got stops on both ends and you can program it. You know what rolled my amp rack in and out? What? An electric antenna motor. Yeah, and those were the kind of things that, yeah, those are the kind of, and it's like good luck trying to hide an antenna motor, right? Those things are huge. Well, that's what I had to do. So that's what rolled my amp rack in and out. And, and, and going back to my notchback, you know, one of the first things my dad, well, one of the things my dad did for me that was truly, as far as I know, the first one was he built me a turntable that we could take, you know, to the shows. And those are all out, you know, outdoor shows and they last for about six hours. So you got to get there early. You set up, you show, you take your trophies and you take all that stuff back apart, put it on the trailer and drive home. And um, he had that thing balanced so well that we used an electric windshield wiper motor out of a Volkswagen. And that's what was turning the turntable. No way. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. You could turn a whole car with a windshield wiper motor and a 12 volt battery. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, you know, that, that was what was so great. I think in, in my opinion about that time is, is, you know, you're starting off with a Volkswagen, you're looking at the competition that's in, you know, the hot rod scene and the technology that they have and, and the technology is moving so fast in the hot rod scene and the VW scene. It always seems that things, it's always the enthusiasts that push the scene versus in the hot rod scene, it's the corporate companies, the I did it's the companies like that that push the scene and develop new product. But it always seems in the VW scene that it's it's the enthusiasts that continue to keep pushing the scene and coming up with the new 
you, the 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 new um, designs and new styles and and new techniques. Uh, and I've, I've always noticed that it seems like it it almost seems like it's isolated to the VW scene. And I think it could be just because the VW people are forced to be resourceful. I keep using this phrase resourceful, resourceful, because it's like we have this Volkswagen. That's it. They're all the same. That you know, from a fifty-two to a to, to a seventy-two, they're all pretty much the same. We we notice the thousands of intricacies between the two, but to the average public, they're all the same. And so we've got to try to do something unique to push the scene, and yet no one's making parts or pieces for these things. And I and I think that's what's really pushed the scene and made it made such a huge connection when people are VW people. You know, they, like you, it's like you you both served in the same war together. You know what you had to deal with to try to make something work because no one made that part or piece. Right. So, so I think you know that's a testament to you and how far you've come along because you currently work in a field where everyone that you work alongside with has degrees in engineering and things to that degree, but you kind of came up from the school of hard knocks. Yeah. You you know you were you had opportunities of trial and error and you you had an opportunity and you pushed that. Talk a little bit about you know how you got into the the computer aspect of things because that's later kind of what you got into and that's evolved into what your career has been now in design and development. But how did that whole thing come together for you? Um, I would have to say that um, after after working for George when when he closed down the. I, right before he closed down his shop, um, I went to work for a guy. Um, as a matter of fact, he's the one who did um, Fred Moore, the guy who did the machining for um, the, the Rod Buster. And he was building another car for Danny Schaefer, uh, a 55 Chevy that was a, a pretty much full on pro, pro street car. But there was no no nuts left unturned on that car. So it was, it was a pretty awesome car. And Fred was doing a lot of machining and I was in, um, I had just started working on the Macintosh because my wife one day showed me how I could make a circle that was this big, that was perfectly round. And I could make one this big that was perfectly round. And um, drawing by hand, I just don't have that skill. I can't make a round circle and I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. Sure. So when, I, when, I, when my wife kind of introduced me to, to uh, the graphic uh, design on the computer that kind of opened up a whole world for me. And, um, so I, I was, when, when you when you kind of have that, that understanding that when I, I want to lay out something on, on this car and I want a pattern and I want all the, I want all the corners to be perfectly tangent with the, with the straight lines. And so you could lay it out on the computer and print it, put it down on your piece of metal and, jigsaw it out and it would be, you know, perfectly, perfectly made. And you could make two of them that were identical without having to have it machined. So that, that worked okay for a while. And that's kind of where I got into, into computers. And then I started to do um, three-dimensional, not really CAD work, but more, more um, three-dimensional design work where I would, I did some some cabinetry for some people, and I was able to actually show them what it would look like in their house before like I started. renderings. Rendering, yeah, but three dimensional renderings, and that and that was what was so great to me was is that I could spend all day long doing one one view of something, 
and make it look halfway decent with by hand. But then if I wanted to look at it from the side, you'd be starting all over again. And so I said, well, if I do this in the, in the, on the computer, I can get exactly what I want and I can render it straight on. And then I can move the camera over and I can render it from the side and everything will still be perfect. And so th that was, that was what, kind of where I got into the, into the CAD world. And then um, I, I moved into a house and I moved next door to this guy that I was showing him some of the things that I did. And he said, hey, I just sold a silicone graphics machine to somebody here in town. And I said, no, those are $500,000 machines. That's what they were using to make Star Trek The Next Generation animations with. Right. So I said, nobody in Bakersfield is going to have something like that. And he says, yeah, I think, I think that's it. Can I, can I like introduce you to him? And I'm thinking, man, they, they can't be using that machine 24 hours a day. If I could just go in there at nighttime and work on it, that'd be pretty cool. So um, he made the introduction to me and I showed him some of the other, some of the cars that I did, some of the other projects that I had done. And, and it just so happened that he was looking for an engineer at the time and um, asked what it was going to take to get me to come and, and work for him. And I says, well, let me use that machine and we can work a deal. So he hired me. Got into the got into the office and started working, and the, that machine was broke. So yeah, they, they had another machine, another PC that, with a with another program called SolidWorks that was uh, loaded onto that machine, and that's what I had to do all my work on. I tried to get that silicone graphics machine working, but it was just too expensive. And 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 by the time I got to it, it was almost antiquated technology. Technology was moving very quickly at that time. And so um, I started working in SolidWorks as an, as an engineer for him, doing his design work, because I am not an engineer, I'm a designer. Mm -hmm. And the, the cool thing was, is that working in that CAD system, everything was interactive. So I could make a cube and I could roll, rotate it around in, in real time. With the software that I was working on before, I could, I could do all the modeling, I could render one, one, one frame of it. And then if I wanted to see what the side of it was, I'd have to roll it around and render another frame. Well, this technology was doing this kind of stuff in real time. And that was huge improvement for me. But more importantly than that was that he had a full, full on CNC machine shop that was being powered by that machine. So I suddenly, instead of tracing out a, a, a pattern that I printed out on a piece of metal and cutting it with my jigsaw, I had access to water jets and lasers and CNC mills and and, and, and lathes and press brakes and just, just about, I mean, I was a kid in a toy shop. So that kept me there for about 20 years working there, um, building knee braces for knee brace components for, um, for Townsend Design. But in the meantime, uh, the, the, car, the car thing really never gets out of your blood. Sure. And I, I'd met another uh, another gentleman called Frank Hinman, who has a very eclectic uh, taste in cars. He picks some of the strangest things to work on and makes them just awesome. And he, he seen what I had to offer from some of the work that I had done before, and um, having the machine shop behind me and the and the computer aided design work uh, ability, uh, we worked for the next twenty years. I work, you know, on the side kind of doing that for with him. And now you're so and your your automotive um 
experience stretches really deep into like it crosses platforms. You go into Chevys and hot rods and all kinds of stuff. The 55 Chevy, you had a part in on that car that we talked about earlier. And you've had uh, several cars that have been featured in the magazine uh, in uh, Super Rod. And um, I think Carcraft was one of the other ones. And, uh, you know, I mean, you've, you've had, uh, you've had a lot of, a, a lot of your work's been featured in the magazine. The, you know, once you cross it, you know, cause being a car guy, right. So my day business is I have, I have a, I'm a Thailand granite business. And instead of buying a bridge saw, what we bought instead was a water jet. Cause I had this dopey idea that I was just going to cut cool parts and whatever. And I can cut my granite and I can nest a lot of pieces and, I could also cut car parts, and to this day, I've only cut a few, a handful of car parts uh, because the machine's so busy running. But it's interesting how our car hobby kind of influences things that we make or, or decisions that we make in business because we're looking like, oh, maybe I can make a car part or two out of that thing, you know, because of the, the you know, the, the technology. And I think technology, especially with you right there being in the epicenter of things, when you know SolidWorks is starting to get kicked off, and you're getting truly you know, kind of grounded in that software, which as you know, today, most people, I had this conversation with someone the other day. I said, most people that use, utilize a piece of software only utilize about 20% of the functionality of the software. Yeah. And, you know, and I think it's human nature for most people that when they get to where they're decent enough and they can do some stuff with it, then they stop wanting to learn. And I've always just, it's always amazed me how, People can work with the software, and and it's and it's the full breadth of the software they don't even utilize. And I've watched people do things the hard way so many times, and you're thinking to yourself, like, oh, "There's a button for that," you know what I mean? Like, but it's 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 got to be, um, you know, for you being involved in that in that CAD design, that 3D, like SolidWorks and stuff like that. That's been pretty much the staple of custom machine. Uh, software rendering and, and prototyping and stuff like that. Hasn't that been pretty, uh, pretty prominent? You know, I, that's really the only CAD software that I've, I've used in, in the, in the, um, in the engineering, the, the software that I used before was um, I used design CAD in the, in the, on the Mac pro uh, platform. Mm-hmm. And that was real limited, but it was real early, like probably 94, something like that. And then, um, AutoCAD was, I mean, that's that's the industry standard is AutoCAD. Sure. And and, and it still could be. I, I really don't know because I don't, I don't use any of that software. And I work with other companies that use other other software. And there's always the the the, the linking file formats where you can work between them. But a, along the lines of what you were saying, when I when I first started working with SolidWorks, it was probably only three or four years old, and I probably was able to utilize 90% of the software to do what it was that I did. But every year they expand the software and, and it's not always an expansion along the lines of work that you're doing. Right. In other words, I'm, I was doing mechanical, mechanical parts, um, sheet metal parts, things like that. Well, if they all of a sudden add an electrical component for designing electrical um, circuitry, I, I, that's not in my, I don't use that because that's not what I do. And then the next, and then the next iteration, they come along and they do something for um, uh, fluid analysis or something like that. 
Sure. And, and that's just things that that are not in 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 my line. So what I'm saying is is that the, the it seems like the CAD software expands, and the reason that you're only using 20% of it's maybe not because you don't want to learn it, but it's just not something that you're going to do on a day to day basis. And you're going to have a hard enough time keeping up with the advances in your field of of, of expertise. Yeah. No. It's it's uh, technology is pretty incredible compared to you know, the way things were in the eighties. And how, like you said, we're looking, when we look, when we contrast today with yesterday and we look at things like, you know, like you said earlier, you can go on YouTube and learn how to do anything and not have to deal with the trial and error. And I mean, you want to learn how to lay fiberglass, you go on YouTube, there's 400 videos on how to lay fiberglass, how to make a mold, how to do all these things that in the car audio scene back in the day, I mean, that was like cutting edge stuff, making fiberglass kick panels and all that kind of stuff in the late eighties, early nineties, those were kind of big deals. And now, you know, this generation of kids has such an opportunity to, to really learn in depth at a, an accelerated pace and not have to make all the mistakes that it's almost like people, some people take it for granted or they're just so used to everything being so, so easy to obtain, you know? Um, I, and I, and I also, I will see that in the car scene to where you don't really see that ingenuity as much as we used to see anymore, you know, where a guy would take something and, and put his own little tweak on it. And now, I mean, we've got the high, we've got the select level of high end builders, right. That are building stuff and they're always pushing the envelope. But for the most part, there's so much that, um, you know, like, and, and for, for me personally, like the, you know, I'm not a huge patina guy. Like I'm not a, for a daily driver, I, I kind of like it, you know, if I've got a daily driver that's, that's got its bumps and bruises, but you know, I've always been a guy that just loves the loves the shiny new detailed like it almost looks like it's not real type stuff and that's the stuff to me that's always motivated inspired me to to want to go build something cool or want to go have my car painted like this or do that now with your help that you've done and building so many cars for so many people and helping helping all these people out where do you stand on the built built versus bought type thing. And what I mean by that is a lot of people say that if a guy is just writing a check to build a car, he's not really building the car. My take on it is like without guys that write the checks, those level of cars never get built. Absolutely. What's your take on that with, with the whole built built versus bought thing? Well, I, for, I think that everybody does what, what it is that they can do best. And um, to, to say that a person who can write the checks is not building a car, they, they have the same anxieties that, that I have. We just think we just stress over different things. I might stress on, you know, how do I get this body line to, to be exactly the same here as it is over here? And they're, they're stressing on what color should I paint it? What color should I do? What kind of wheels should I have? They're, they're, everybody to, to say that 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 a person who writes a check isn't involved in the car maybe that is the case it hasn't been the case for me every every car that I've been fortunate enough to work on um, the, the owners have been very very much involved and like you said I, I would never have had the opportunity to do some of the things that I've been able to do um, ha- had there not been somebody there to write to write some checks that I wasn't going to be able to write 
I might be able to do the work that, that they can't, but um, uh, some of the things that they can afford, I can't. Yeah. You know, and maybe it's a, a selfish thing that I said, because I've, I've gotten to a point where at my busiest, most productive aspect in my life, I knew I wanted cars that were super clean, but you know, as, as the Greek philosopher said, know thyself. Right. And I know, you know, that they don't call me three bolt Billy for no reason. Right. I'm getting three bolts on that thing and I'm going down the road because I'm trying to drive next to the plate glass window and see my reflection. And, uh, <laughs> I throw caution to the wind and my brother's really like the, the drill down detail guy. Like, no, no, you can't drive it yet. You can't drive it. I'm like, Hey man, it started. Let's go, let's go around the block. You know, like, you know, it's, it's funny, but you know, we, we have those differences in, in our temperament, uh, you know, like between my brother and myself, but, but me, I just, I want to live the experience and, and I know my limit. And so when I, like, when I sit out to, when I saw a car that motivated me and I said, I've got to have something that nice, I knew right out of the gate, like, well, there's no way I can build it because I'm trying to put the clear on before the base coat's dry. And I'm just trying to, you know, like everything for me is a race. And, and I've really enjoyed, you know, the opportunity to work with really good builders to where I give them my input of what, not even my input. I tell them how the car is going to be built. We're doing this color, this interior, these wheels, this, you know, these components. And, um, you know, for the most part, I'm building the car in my head before it's built and the theme is in my head and the, and the style is there. Has that been the experience with you with some of the guys you've built these cars with that they, that, that, you know, you're able to kind of understand their vision as you're starting to put the car together and see where it's going and, and, and follow that thread through. That's probably, probably one of the biggest challenges is, is that, you know, that they have, they have something in their head and, it's your job as a builder to, to try and discern what that is and make sure that you can give that to them because the, the closer that you can get to their, to their expectations or more fun than that is if you can exceed their expectations and you wind up giving them something that's beyond what they would, was in their was in their mind. Um, you know, that's, that's what makes, that's what makes my, my, my experience with building cars. I, I, I'm not the guy who cares about driving in front of the plate glass window. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I don't even own any cars, any cool cars. To, to me, the all of the fun for me is in the building. And and it's it's more fun when I'm building a car for someone because it's a, it's a, two, it's a double-edged sword for me because first of all, there's the challenge of whatever it is that I'm trying to do that nobody else has ever done before and and the thrill that i get from seeing that come to fruition is is what i work for and then when 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 you see your customer or or your friend see what you've done and they have that same appreciation you got to experience that excitement twice yeah no doubt i mean that's what that's what it is for me and 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 after the car is built it turns into maintenance and I'd rather do other things than maintain cars. <laughs> so you like the process of getting it to that stunning beauty that it is and then walk away while it's still all in one piece and, and, and move on to the next challenge that I learned taking what I've learned from that one. And what am I going to do to top this? That's the exciting part for me. 
so you currently don't own any custom vehicles of your own and you you kind of you you enjoy more the build it's almost like the guy who buys and sells cars does it because he loves the thrill of the hunt. You know, it's like the chase. It's that part. And then once he gets it, it's like, okay, let's get the next one going. So is that kind of the same experience that you share with uh, with building and, and, and making things like that? Uh, I, get, I, I guess. I, I wouldn't know about the buying and selling cars because I only know one way, and that's to buy high and sell low because it works every time. <laughs> Well, so it's never, never really a pleasing experience for me. <laughs> well, that's that's a car guy's mentality. That's that's doing it truly for the love of the vehicle. So, in future stuff that you that you're doing now, or things that you want to do, is there any particular type of car you'd love to build, or love to some things you'd love to see come to fruition that you'd like to? If someone said, "Hey, Steve, it's blank check time." And I want you to build because I, I know you built uh, you you built that um, that factory five car that was kind of your closest thing to you kind of doing something from a, a, as much a blank slate as you can. Yeah. Um, how was that experience for you? It was it was always featured in Kit Car Magazine, and I think it was called a a, a GTM. Is that what it's called? A factory five yeah. GTM. Yeah. Tell tell me a little bit about the process with building that because that was that was quite an undertaking, right? Um. Yes and no. It, it was a, it was one of those self-inflicted problems. Um, matter of fact, that that that's the car right back there. <laughs> <clears throat> um, like I told you, I, I'd I'd been working for Frank Hinman for many many years, working on on his eclectic uh, style of cars, and he came to me and said, uh, "There's this new kit car, Steve, that I want to build." And I, I had built some kit cars before, some of them on Volkswagen chassis, some of them on their own chassis. And I wasn't, you know, so excited about, about that prospect. And, and then he showed me the car. And fortunately there was a, there was one being built in Bakersfield that I actually got to go see. And as soon as I seen that car, I said, yes, th this is it. Because I've always, I, I'd always, you know, I've been building cars for a long time, developing a, quite a few different skills. And you, you had kind of mentioned before that I've worked on Volkswagens and Chevys and, and Cadillacs and Buicks and, all kinds of things. And, and to me, it's, you know, it isn't a Chevy or a Ford or a Volkswagen. It's, 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 a, it's a challenge. It's, it's a car. And, um, but I've always, no matter what car that I've started with, um, and no matter how cool you make it, it's still that car. Sure. If that makes any sense. Like, like say the Rodbuster. I mean, yeah. that's a super cool car. But it's Carmagia, and, that, and that's not to, that's not to say that's a bad thing. But it's still anybody can look at it and say it's Carmagia, and sure. it's been and it's had everything that you could possibly do to it. And so I wanted something that that hadn't mess that was more of an open slate that you could do more of what you wanted to do. And like that car that's behind me, there's only 400 of those in the world. And it, it came. And when he said that he wanted to build it he had the checkbook and he said, okay, we're going to build this. And Frank never does anything halfway. He, he, he's always been very, very gracious in, in the car projects that we've done, but he said, I could do anything I wanted to. And for me, that's, that's, that's a dream come true. And there wasn't any, there wasn't a budget per se. I mean, we didn't do things stupid, but, I could do anything that I wanted to. There wasn't a timeline, which is always works against you. So I had the ability to build something 
and say, I don't like that. Like the dash, I did that three times before I came up with one that I liked. And any one of them were, were, were fine. It's just, it didn't get to that point that I wanted it to be. And I didn't have to worry about having uh, the customer say, oh, that cost me $2,000 and you're going to throw it away and we're going to do it. It didn't cost Frank anything. It was all my time. Right. And it was something that I was doing because I loved it. And so I was able to build that car just the way I wanted to. And, um, and unfortunately, I built it just the way I wanted to. And it was that first scratch syndrome that I didn't want to experience. <laughs> so, so as soon as it was, you know, it was built, then it sat. And it, it really, I mean, it's a really cool car, really fast and really a head turner. But the problem is, is that you're sitting so low in that, that you're looking at tires and wheels in cars beside you. And everybody's always driving right next to you, wanting to see everything. So it's, you know, like, get away, get away, stay back. Sure. And so, and, and when you got a car that's that low and you got that much overhang in front of the tires, man, you got to look out for every pothole in the road or any curb or gutter that's a little too deep. You got to be careful. Of. So it's kind of a, it was really fun to drive on the track. Um, because there at least everybody was going in the same direction. You didn't have to worry about people running out in the street. Uh, you're supposed to go fast. And um, so that was pretty fun. But that kind of got, you know, after a few laps, it kind of got boring too. Now that car, the platform on this car, that's the, and so some people think when you're building a, a kit car, right, would you say that the base of that kit car is a high quality base to start with i think i think um well it's 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 a great kit is it the best kit out there i, I from the technological point of view it's that's kind of hard to say i, I can give you a i can give you an example uh, in dirt bikes you've got uh -huh. the japanese dirt bikes aluminum yep. frames everything fits perfect and then and then i, I just got a ktm old school chromoly frames, you know, there's no aluminum frames on that, but right. it, 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 it's just a different way of, of, you know, if you want billet aluminum, this is not your car. If sure. you want something that's built basically as a sprint car that, you know, it's got an all two chromoly frame in it. It runs Corvette suspension, which is proven technology. It runs a Porsche gearbox, um, an LS six motor. You got plenty of power, plenty of, Everything. Yeah. It looks like yeah. a it looks like a beast. I mean, the things uh the things uh, it, it and it kind of looks a little like the Celine S seven, similar yeah. to. Yeah. Well, that one that one, the, unfortunately, there's not a panel on there that hasn't been massaged in some way. So even still, I mean, and uh, but I think that would fall into the category of a high end kit car, right? That's not a cheap kit to begin with. Oh no. no. And no then it, I, was, it was it was it was a you know probably a. That could have been a hundred thousand dollar car when it was done easily. Yeah, yeah, that's why I, I looked and I thought that's a six figure car. I mean, as as inexpensive as you're doing stuff, you I, if I had to guess, the kit's twenty five grand for the kit, yeah. maybe if I had to guess, and then you're seventeen another, grand another for the car grand for, for the for the other you know various stuff that you're going to buy. Now. Any cars that you'd like to build that you've never built that uh, that intrigued you? Don't think so. 
don't think so. Not to say that 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 my that my eyes couldn't be popped open any any day, but I've got other things that I'm that I've kind of moved away from cars. Um, so what are you, what's your passion today? Like what's what's really gets you gets you fired up about about doing today? Well, I, I'm working on a on a project for the for the military, uh, 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 the next generation uh, fighter pilot helmets, and that's an industry that I really didn't know much about. And so the learning curve is pretty steep. And it, I mean, you, here's a, for instance, something that I would never experience in the, in, in the car industry is that we did what's called a wind blast test where the helmet is exposed to a 600 mile an hour wind blast oh, wow. for three seconds. Even Formula One cars go 200 miles an hour they're not experiencing those kind of forces. That's just something that's beyond the realm of what I've, I've ever experienced before. And so that's kind of exciting. So that's a project that I'm working on. And, and I retired kind of semi-retired, <clears throat> excuse me, out of the, uh, out of the car industry, out of the knee brace industry uh, to build my house here in Nevada. And I haven't got to finish that yet. So I really enjoy I really enjoy working on, on my house and, and and you know I designed that from the ground up in SolidWorks. So I got to know where every board is, every every wire, and um, it's still not finished. And I, I, I think a house is sort of like a sort of like a car. It's only finished when you when you sell it. Yeah. So that's kind of what my passion is right now. And then you know, my family. Yeah. I enjoy spending time with my with my family that they they're, they're the ones that probably sacrificed for all those nights that I worked <clears throat> on cars and things. So I'm trying to give back to them now. No, I listen. I definitely, I appreciate everything that you've done for the hobby. The things that you were a part of in the early part of the VW scene that influenced a lot of us guys as we were just teenage kids picking up those magazines and, and seeing you guys push the bar because those images can't help but to be seared in our mind and and part of the background of why we do what we do because we're chasing that that visual snapshot we saw in the magazine or that car or the you know the the whole that whole vibe of the way something looked you know especially with the raspberry i think raspberry had to be like if there's one color of the late at the mid 80s to the early 90s i think raspberry's got to be the color because there were so many of these raspberry colored cars that it was like you know, even Porsche got into it for a while. And in the, in the, in the, the nine, six, four, I think they had a raspberry colored car, you know? So, um, but you know, these things in, in, in the part of the history that you were, you were in with that Bakersfield crew doing the stuff that they were doing was pretty envelope pushing, especially from the standpoint of thinking you guys are in Bakersfield, you know, and, and there's really nothing to glean Insp- I don't want to say there's nothing to glean inspiration from, but you guys had to get real creative or had to have a lot of that inspiration inside you to keep pushing it like that because of, you know, like you said, every car she had to go to was hundreds of miles away. Today, I mean, today I'm spoiled. Like the car culture now here in Las Vegas, every sing- almost every single day, for sure throughout the weekends and usually it's a couple of days during the week, there's some car event going on where I can go to, look at cars or, you know, see whatever we're, a lot of these influencers are created from. So I definitely, you know, hats off to you for everything that you did with, 
with Volksworks and uh, you know Delfino and uh, and Chris Addington and, and and the dozens of other cars that you were part of in that Bakersfield scene. I mean, it's it's huge. I'm I'm glad we got to chat for a little bit and and uh, I definitely. You know, the crazy part is we've been doing this for an hour and a half and we have we we we've hardly scratched the surface of all the things that you've done. And so going going forward, you know, definitely I might I might drag you back to kind of get in some detail and stuff and go over some of the some of the specific uh, things that you've done. But, you know, like I said, I really wanted to get you on here for the history and and to hear it from the guy who lived it. Um, It was definitely it's definitely been something that, that was impactful to me in my youth and and it and it's it's something that i've used for motivation throughout these years with cars and builds that we've done you know that 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 i've put cars on the street because of that stuff so i I personally thank you for that and uh i like you know i i like the fact that we got to chat on the phone for an hour before this and just got to chat chat it up about a bunch of nonsense having to do with cars and and programming and and cad and and stereos and all kinds of stuff you know because to me those things are, are what I'm passionate about. And I love to talk to the guys that did those things back, you know, when I was just a young man picking up an issue, a car stereo review or whatever it was. And, and those were the things that really, you know, when I didn't have two nickels to rub together and I would look and say, man, if I could only afford a jail audio subwoofer, <laughs> you know, I just, I'm appreciative of everything that you've done for the hobby, man. And, and, and as much as you may think like you're gone, the things that you've done, the cars that you've built have definitely left an impact in the VW scene. And, and, and I'm grateful for that and what you did, you know, back, back in that time and still what you continue to do today. Well, thank you. And I, I wish I would have paid more attention while it was happening so I could give you some more details. But man, that that that, that, that was a time of life when, uh, you know, you're in your early 20s, man, you're humping and getting it. You're working seven days a week and and hoping for hoping for anything that you can, you know, make make work. Oh, without question. I mean, it's it's like work all day, then work all night, and uh, you'll have time for you'll have sleep. You'll sleep when you're dead. You know, I think that's what I can't remember saying that more enough than when I was young, man, and and just jamming through stuff. You know, yeah. so now, Steve, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you coming for coming on the show, and uh, I, I'm sure this isn't the last we've heard from you because uh, you know, like I said, you put a lot of cars out there, and I may snag you every now and again just to get. Uh, get some some feedback from you on some stuff and uh for sure i see a reason to drag you back every now and again well i i hope some of the stuff that i remember is right now listen whether it's right or wrong it's your memory that's the way it went down <laughs> according to it's the way you heard it right so I, I guess that's all i can do that's it well hey thanks for coming on the show if you enjoyed this podcast and i know you did make sure you share it with your vw buddies nothing's more meaningful to me than you guys enjoying the show enough to a write to the show at bill let's talk bill at let's talk dubs.com and also share the podcast with a friend and to support the podcast go to let's talk dubs.com click on the store link and pick up some merch to support your favorite podcast well guys i got plenty more coming up and i do it for the love and i do it for you guys so i appreciate the emails and whatnot that we get looking forward to seeing a bunch of you guys out of sacramento So I'm excited for our first show coming up. And until next week, guys, later. A Volkswagen is a nice station wagon.